All right, so Romans chapter 14. We got all the way down through, uh, if I made a note right here, verse 5, uh, verses 5 through 9. And so we left off on the statement there, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, and so what I wanted you to start us off with, a good way to review and also look at the new material, is I'm going to need two volunteers, one to read verses 1 through 4, kind of covering where we've been, and then somebody to read verses 5 through 9, kind of open up the new next little portion of what we're going to talk about. And so can I get a volunteer to read the first four verses of Romans 14? Who wants to read? First four verses. Come on. Who wants to? Rick. Awesome. Thank you. I'm, he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. You can raise your hand. Okay. And then five through nine. Five through nine. Pastor Greg, thanks. Appreciate that willingness to just throw his hand up there. I'm lying. He didn't raise his hand at all. So, all right. So Romans 14, one through four, and then we'll jump five through nine. Go ahead, Rick. Okay, so we're getting a pretty good picture of what's going on here. So if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that Romans 14 is going to sound very similar to some parts of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a letter that was written to the Corinthian church to kind of encourage some different thinking on some things, to encourage growth, to correct some things that were going on, to teach some truth. And so Romans 14 is, is Paul's way of kind of trying to encourage the church to have the right mindset in dealing with one another. And what are the two areas that we unpacked last week, and we just read it here, there was two areas of kind of disagreement among the believers in the church at Rome. What were the two areas of disagreement? They pertain to two different main things. What was one of the things? What's that? Yeah, eating meat, okay? One group said you can eat meat. Some, one group said no, you can only eat herbs, okay, or vegetables, okay? Now, again, Paul doesn't say this specifically in Romans 14. In Corinthians, there's an issue about eating meat. And what was the problem with that meat that they were talking about in 1 Corinthians? What was the meat used for before they were eating it? Yeah. Yeah, it had been offered to an idol or false god, okay? Kind of interesting. They would offer this meat to the idols, to whatever idols they chose to offer it to. Obviously, the idol did not what? Did not consume the meat because it's not real. So then they would take that meat that was now been offered to the idols, and they would sell it at the market, more or less. 
And then people could come along and buy that meat. Now, some have thought, well, maybe that meat was discounted. Maybe it was a different value, okay? For whatever reason, people could buy this meat and then use that for their own food. And the believers in the church at Corinth said, hey, listen, as former Gentiles who used to worship those idols, we, we can't eat that stuff because that's, that's drawing us back into relationship with those idols. It's kind of like when someone says, you know, before I was saved, I listened to this kind of music. Or I watch this kind of stuff. And so I can't even listen to that kind of music because now as a Christian, I don't want to be drawn back into where I was 15, 20, 30 years ago. Okay? So there could be some argument like that. Then you've got other Christians who are saying, there's no problem with this meat because the idols aren't really real. They're just made up. The meat wasn't really, nothing happened to the meat. Right? I mean, it's not like that became an idol. It's just hamburger. So what's the problem with it? We can eat it. We're fine. We're saved by grace. All things are clean and we're good. When you get to the Roman church, you, all he says is eating meat. So we don't know for sure if it's meat sacrificed to idols or what the issue was with this meat. But you can kind of understand where there'd be an issue here. What was the other issue in the church? It's kind of talked about more in that second portion of scripture that was read. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, Paul says it, right? One man says this day is special and that day is special. Another man says, no, no days are really special. They're all the same. And so the two issues were diets and basically the calendar. How you viewed a day, how you treated a physical day of the week, okay? And so Paul's trying to teach them some basic principles. Now, do you think those were the only two issues that came up in the church? No. Paul's using these two issues. Maybe it's what he heard about the church. Remember, he's never met these believers, right? He doesn't know them personally. He hopes to come see them, right? And he does end up in Rome, but not for the way that he was probably hoping to get there, okay? So he doesn't know these believers. Maybe he's heard about this church. Maybe he's heard about this division, okay? And so he's responding to those issues he's heard about. In the church at Corinth, there's all kinds of issues he responds to. But he has a relationship with Corinth because he's the one that founded the church. Remember, he was there for about 18 months teaching and preaching and establishing the church. So here we see him just responding to maybe what he's heard. Maybe it was a cultural issue in the, in the church at that time. And so mo, a lot of churches had this issue, and he's merely responding to what could be an issue. The way he talks about it, though, I tend to think maybe he heard something about the church having these issues. Obviously, the ultimate answer is God instructed him to address this issue. So maybe Paul doesn't know anything. The Spirit of God knows exactly what this church needs to hear. So the Spirit of God gives him the words to say. This is what we see in Revelation to the seven churches. Each church had a very specific good and bad. Okay, you're doing these things good. You're not doing these things very good. Okay, and uh, we know that that was very specific to the church. And so the first thing he says in your notes there, he opens up with the key is to receive one another. That's the key. There's two groups of people here. There's the weak and the strong. And he says the key is to receive the weak. Now, I mentioned it last week. This could mean uh, if I'm the one that doesn't think eating meat is okay, so I'm like, I'm opposed to the to meat, okay, I only eat herbs, and I see another Christian eating the meat, I might think I'm the strong and they're the weak. And the person over here eating the meat is going to go, man, all these weak Christians, they can't handle meat, okay? But Paul actually eliminates that confusion about who's weak, who's strong, Right in the very beginning of the chapter, he actually talks about the fact that there are those who are weak in the faith, and then he identifies those as the ones who are forbidding the meat in the chapter. 
So the strong are those who are not bound by this restriction. Okay? Notice they're both Christians, though. Both groups are Christian. And that's what we talked about last week. One of the reasons that we can receive our weaker brothers and sisters is because God has received them. We see that in the first three verses. God has received them in Christ. In verse 4, we read that and understand that God sustains his own. God sustains his own. So again, this is that idea that, that God received them as, as, uh, as saved, as redeemed, and so we can receive them. Now there was a key there. I just realized I skipped over it. In the very first verse there, it talks about how not to receive them. How should I not receive this weaker brother or sister? And, and receive is the idea of inviting into my home for food. That's the idea. Inviting into a relationship, meaning having a meal together, which again is symbolic in the Bible of relationship within the church. How should I not receive them? What's he say in the very first verse there? Do not receive in this way. Talks about doubtful what? Disputations. Somebody else said something about, I think it was a translation, said something about judgments. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is basically, I'm the stronger brother, okay? And I'm inviting this other person into our home. And we sit down to the meal and I lay a big old juicy steak in front of them. And I go, all right, let's talk about this. Let's debate this. Actually, one of the words would be deliberate, to deliberate this conviction you have. And Paul says, no, no, no. The whole point of receiving them is to, in my opinion, rejoice in the common salvation that you have. Basically, don't bring them into your home to argue with them about their own personal convictions. In fact, we have a fellowship that's so much greater than that, we don't even need to bring it up. But we will get to in a minute here that you can at a point, talk about those things. But he says, when you receive them, don't receive them just to debate with them and to judge them and basically to argue with them, okay? And then verses 5 through 9 in your notes, we, we just kind of touched on that. Now we're getting to this idea of the days of the week or the days of the year, okay? Similar to the previous point, Paul points out that there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And so that's a real big key in just four verses how many times he talks about this. The word Lord is used roughly eight times in these verses. So that's a, that's a pretty big thing. Whenever you're doing Bible study, you have to kind of stop. When you see a phrase repeated or a word repeated or something used multiple times, especially in a small amount of verses, you need to stop and go, what does that verse mean? What does that word mean? Why is that being emphasized? And that's how we're really going to get to a deeper understanding of Scripture. So again, he's talking about the of judging each other, right? Days of the week. And he spends all this time talking about this idea of Jesus Christ being Lord, okay? Uh, it's pretty clear that no one takes the position of Lord but Jesus Christ. That's the key, really, when you look at this here. No matter who you're talking about, no matter how they look at a calendar, there's only one Lord. Uh, we can pray for each other, right? We can admonish one another. What do you think admonish how would you say that for yourself? Like when you, when you hear the word admonish one another, what comes to your mind? Okay, spur, I like spurring them on. Okay, encourage them forward. Okay. In this context, we're talking about in the things of Christ, right? In the things of the Lord. But you can do this in many things. You could admonish somebody in a certain area of their life that isn't specifically Bible or Jesus related. Okay. 
Maybe somebody's really good in a certain area and they're kind of doubting their abilities and you're spurring them on. You're kind of admonishing them that they are really good at whatever, playing this instrument or doing this thing. What else comes to mind when you hear the word admonish? Spur them on, encourage them. Any other thoughts on that? I always think of what Hebrews talks about, that provoking unto love and good works. To me, that's admonishing somebody. That's, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to provoke you unto love and good works. And so we can do that. We can pray. We can admonish each other. We can even advise one another. Right? It's okay to give advice to someone, right? Now, when should we give advice to somebody, another believer? When they ask, right? What are we really good at doing, though? giving advice when they have not given us the invitation of influence, right? I just tell people what they should do, right? Yeah, I, I'm not going to repeat what I've heard said about that. I think somebody, even, I walked by, somebody might have said it on one of the Tuesdays I heard it said, um, only because it's on a recording and someone might be listening to it and then go, what did he just say? Um, but anyway, we, we are, we're really good at that. We're really good at telling people what they're supposed to do, okay? You're supposed to do, supposed to do that. If somebody asks you, or opens up an influence into, or allows you to be an influence of, you're free to do that. As long as it's been prayed about, it's said with a heart of love, right? You've checked your own heart against Scripture. Okay, am I right in what I'm saying? Am I wise in sharing this right now? Is this the best timing to share this? But we can give advice to another believer. But no matter what position somebody gives us in their life— by the way, some of you in this room, and, well, most of us in some way, shape, or form, I would say, or at least at a point in our life, somebody looks up to you. Right? Somebody looks to you for wisdom and guidance and encouragement, and they look to you as a leader. And so we need to take that very careful, be very careful with that. But no matter how far up somebody thinks of our leadership or our influence, we never become Jesus Christ to them. We never become Lord over them. And that's the biggest difference in discipleship. I don't disciple someone to be like me in my walk with Christ. I disciple someone so that they will be active in their walk with Christ and see Christ in them, right? Some people, and you've maybe known people like this, they almost try to make you like them and how they pray, how they study, how they do their thing instead of letting you be kind of individual with God. Another key in these verses Okay, when you read through these just four verses, another key is the phrase, unto the Lord. So we see the word Lord repeated about eight times, but we also see this phrase, unto the Lord. The idea is that if you think this or that food is holy, this or that day is holy, it's all about connecting it to the Lord, elevating him personally as Lord. So we don't get so focused on the surface thing, but on the heart of, is it for the Lord? So if you think this day is really holy, and specifically, what, what days, and we mentioned this last week too, what days or what group of people in this church, thinking about the book of Romans, right? We dealt with this group of people a few times now. You've got Gentiles and you've got, what's the other side of that coin? The Jews. They're in the church too. So maybe you've got some new Christians who were Jews, and now they're taking their holy calendar, right? The Jewish calendar, all these holy days and festivals and all this. And they're bringing it into the church going, okay, we have to do these things. You have to celebrate Passover. You have to do this. How about this one? You can't celebrate that day that way. You have to celebrate these days. These are the only days we celebrate. By the way, this is, it's kind of funny. I love how things in scripture come full circle. 
We hear this from 2,000 years ago, and we're like, how silly is this? They're fighting over days of the week. This is happening today. Do you know there are Christians who, and I'm not blaming, it's, not, it's, it's okay if they really have that conviction, but there are Christians who refuse to celebrate Christmas or Easter, okay, because they have, quote, pagan origins, which we can debate that and to what extent much of that paganism has lasted, but anyway, but they will elevate the Jewish days and say, we only celebrate these holidays. I was listening to one person who said, we celebrate the days that Jesus celebrated. Okay, that's true-ish, right? I mean, Jesus did celebrate these festivals. But nowhere in Scripture are we as the church commanded to celebrate these things. Now, there's other things. Other churches celebrate um, the day of Pentecost as a holiday when they believe the day of Pentecost would have fallen. Nothing wrong with that. Totally fine. The key is whether you're celebrating Christmas or Easter, right, or, or Passover or whatever other holiday, what is the key that Paul keeps emphasizing over and over and over again? Yes. Right. Yep. Because what did every Old Testament festival, every holy day in the Old Testament, all those days that they celebrated as Jewish people, what did they point to? Christ. Some pointed back to the freedom from Egypt, right, and the Passover and all of that. But even Passover, Jesus kind of takes that over, right, with the Last Supper. Yeah. He says, hey, this holiday you've been celebrating, this holy days, I'm going to now show you that, yes, it's celebrating what God has done, right? The, this idea of setting you free from Egypt and all these things. But now I'm going to show you the fullness of it is this new covenant that I will establish with, with my people. And so all these holy days pointed to Christ. And so if somebody tells me, okay, we only celebrate these days and we don't celebrate these, quote, pagan holidays, that's totally fine. But the problem comes in when somebody says, you can't celebrate Christmas. You can't celebrate Easter. You can't do this, can't do that. If there's no scripture that says you can't, the idea here is Paul saying you're free as long as it's unto the Lord. Equally so, there's nothing saying you have to celebrate any day. You could look at every day the same. It doesn't really matter in relation to Christ. Um, and so this idea here, we have to understand this. Uh, John uh, 21 15 through 25. Let's go to John 21. We're going to jump out of Romans for just a minute. I want to give you guys an example of this idea of our focus being on me and the Lord and not so much on others' relationship with the Lord. Okay? So John 15, I'm sorry, John 21, verse 15. We're not going to read all of it, but I'll give you an idea here. And so 15 through 25, you guys can go ahead. Once you get there, take just a quick glance at the passage. Okay, I'll give you a minute to get there. You probably already figured out John 21. Okay, that's the end of the Gospel of John. So we know that Jesus has already been crucified, already rose from the dead, right? He's already had time with his disciples, okay? And so here we're going to see this kind of interaction. Now, real quick, what are you going to notice here? What's John 21, 15 to 25 dealing with? Jesus having a conversation with who? Peter. Yeah, somebody said it. And what's this whole conversation about? 
just give me a quick summary about what's going on here between Jesus and Peter. This is before Jesus ascends, and he's having a conversation with Peter. What's the kind of the heart of the conversation? And so, yeah, so Peter has denied Christ. Remember, Jesus was being, you know, uh, on trial, if you will. And Peter is being asked, hey, you sound like a Galilean. Aren't you with them? Weren't you with them? Okay, I'm paraphrasing. The idea of this is that he was being called out. Remember, this is Peter who said, Lord Jesus, I'll die with you. Now, to his credit, if you put any weight in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, Peter does end up dying like Christ and with Christ, and then he was crucified. History, church history says he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified as Christ was crucified. And so we know that Peter ends up fulfilling that kind of, I don't want to call it prophecy, but that kind of like a prophecy saying, I want to die with you. But immediately following those statements, here he is terrified to admit openly that he even knows Jesus. He's not even saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. He doesn't even say he knows Jesus. And so Jesus resurrects from the dead, and they have this beautiful moment. I don't know about you, but just real quick for a second, think about if you're Peter. You know that you told Jesus you would die with him. You know that you even tried to defend him in the garden, right? You took a swing at a guy. Um, some people say Peter picked the, the servant and cut his ear off because he wasn't going to go for one of the Roman soldiers. I heard somebody else say Peter was just swinging at the nearest person and it just happened to be that guy. And so when you think about that, you've, you've shown this, this brass, you know, I'm going to die with you, Lord Jesus. Then Jesus is arrested and you're seeing what's going on. Then you deny him three times in one night. He ends up being crucified. He raises again. And now you're having this conversation with him. What are you feeling right now? And if you're Peter and you're looking at the eyes of Christ and he's sitting across from you and he says, hey, do you love me? Like I've always read that and thought, man, my, my heart would sink, right? I don't know if I'd have any words. I would just probably start bawling like a baby and just being like, I, I guess not, Lord, because I denied you. I did what you said I would do. So how would you respond in that moment? This is just kind of, Food for thought. I just want to hear what you guys have to say. How would you just respond if you were Peter in that moment? Are you as brass as you were before? Are you going to be, you know, determined and saying, no, I, Lord Jesus, I'm going to die with you? I'd also be a little humiliated. I mean, I'd be embarrassed, right? But how does Jesus respond to Peter? He just asks him simple questions. Do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know. By the way, it's kind of interesting that he says you know all things, right? You know because you knew that I would deny you before I even knew I was going to deny you. So he says, you know this, Lord. You know basically the truth. And he goes on through there. He says he loves him. Now I want to get down here towards the end here. So here he says, verse 18, Okay. And he talks about all these things, about these different things. Verse 19, This spake he signifying by that, by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Who is he telling to follow me? Who is being told, follow me? Peter is being told to follow me. So again, what's the invitation that Christ gives? We always say, believe, just believe. He does say that, but what does he say much more than believe? He says, follow me. And I think we have a, a church culture today that is much more about, I believe, Lord, than it is about, Lord, I believe unto following you. And so when you see this here, he says, follow me. Now, 
we see pretty quickly in the book of Acts, what did Peter do? Did he follow Christ? Yeah, by Acts 2, he's preaching the day of Pentecost, or preaching on the day of Pentecost. But look at verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who's the disciple that Jesus loved? John. Now, he loved all of them, but John, in the Gospel of John, do you notice that? He doesn't even identify himself in that. Actually, when you read the Gospel of John, he doesn't identify himself. He always just says, the one whom Jesus loved. And again, I think that was a very humble way to, he was almost in shock. I can't believe I'm one that Jesus would love. So it goes on to say in verse 20, Then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Now he's recounting the, the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Isn't this how we are? You just got, I mean, humbled by Jesus. You deny Jesus three times in one night. He's given you grace. You've repented. You've called out. He says, follow me, which is an act of restoration. He's restored Peter. He's given Peter this opportunity. And Peter, in that moment, looks back at John and goes, well, what about him? What are you going to do with him? And I love Jesus' response. Verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Follow thou me. And this is kind of what came to mind when I was thinking about this, what Paul is talking about here. We get so wrapped up in, but Lord, what about that person? What about that person? How are they following you? What are they doing? How are they going to follow? And Jesus' words, I think, are just as true for us today. What is it... Your concern. Why do you care if they tarry till I come? If, if John lives until the day I come back, why do you care? You follow me. And I think that's kind of what Paul is saying in chapter 14 of Romans. Don't worry about other believers and the day of the weeks and the diets and all that other nonsense. You just follow me. You just keep your eyes on me. The next section here, and we've got a few minutes, so we'll read that. Uh, so go back to Romans chapter 14. So back to Romans 14 and uh, verse 10. So again, remember, what's the key here? Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't live unto ourselves and we don't die unto ourselves. That means I don't live for me. And when I die, it's not just about me. That's really encouraging for believers and really concerning for unbelievers. Do you know what the atheistic model is for this life? Just basically... Live whatever life you want to live, because when you die, it's just nothing. You just cease to exist. There's nothing there. And that's a really, really freeing verse, if it, or freeing idea, if it was true. But these verses tell us it's not true. You can live unto yourself. You think you're living unto yourself, rather. But when you die, you die unto the Lord. That means you will stand before him one day. You may not think that, but you will. For the believer, we see this as a blessing to live unto the Lord and to die unto the Lord because we are his. So verses 10 through 12, let's look at these real quick. Uh, just one more verse or one more volunteer to read a couple of verses. Verses 10 through 12. Uh, Renee or Evan, whoever wants to read. Oh, sorry. I thought I saw Evan's hand. Go ahead, Renee.
Okay. So this is kind of a, referring to what I was just talking about here. We will all, weak and strong, right, no matter where we are classified this side of heaven, will be judged by Christ at what's called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. We will not stand in judgment over each other. That's huge. I will not stand before Christ and judge Rick. Okay? There's a real big reason why I can't do that. Because I'm not, I'm not given that authority. I'm not granted that authority because I'm sinful in my heart. He is sinful in his heart. So we both needed grace and forgiveness. The only one that can judge us is Christ because he's the one that gave all for us. We will not stand in judgment over each other. So why judge each other in these non-biblical matters today? If I won't stand over you in judgment in eternity, then why do we stand over each other in judgment today? We've elevated ourselves over someone else, and we've never been given that authority to do that. Paul shares that we will be rewarded for the, for the things we do for Christ. Our sin is covered in Christ, and it is never brought up again. So we live free for Christ and his honor. You guys have heard this said, and I've, I've said this before. Some of us think that, or have been taught that, when we stand before Christ that day of judgment in Christ, that a projector screen is going to be brought down, and they're going to start showing all the highlights and the lowlights of our life. All the things we did wrong, all the things we did right, right? And then we'll stand there feeling really shamed and awkward and embarrassed and hope that something good comes out of it. We've also heard people say things like, you don't want to be the only one that doesn't receive a crown. You don't want to look over and see your brother over here with a pile of crowns and you have none. So you need to work for Christ. These are all horrible ways to motivate believers because they're not true. Paul gives us the great motivation. One day you will be judged for yourself. Your account will be, will be taken. And how you live for Christ will make the difference. And so don't worry about anyone else. And we do that. We think somehow we're going to worry about each other in eternity, so we make it okay to worry about each other now in a, in a judgmental sense. We don't need to do that. We can actually look and say, no, I need to focus on Christ. I need to follow him because I'm going to give an account for myself one day. I don't need to worry about anyone else. So the question becomes, how do we then prepare for that judgment seat? How do we prepare for what's called the Bema seats? The key is by making Jesus the Lord of our life and faithfully obeying him. By living unto the Lord every single day and obeying him. So if we stopped right here, based on everything we've covered so far, we may think that we should just leave the weak to their rules and their restrictions, to just leave them alone. However, Paul gives us another word of encouragement to help the weak grow into mature followers of Christ. Paul's emphasis and what he wants us to change in our thinking is moving from a master-servant relationship and approach to other believers, right? Master-servant, that's not how we should think about our relationship with other believers, to a brother-to-brother approach, to a family-to-family member approach. I want to note as well that when we address things like we did last week, this idea of false teaching or the misuses of Scripture, okay, we are not attacking the individual We are criticizing the teaching. There's a big difference there. We must be discerning of the message that we're hearing preached in the name of Christ so as we know whether or not we should receive it. When I use the illustration of Joel Olstein last week, I use that as an illustration to show you someone who is consistently teaching this teaching that is not a critique necessarily of the individual because I don't know the man's heart. I don't know if he knows Jesus or not. His own profession is he does. I don't know him. 
but I can look at his teaching, his, his message, and say, I can discern that. I'm not going to discern or critique the individual. That's different than what Paul's saying here. Paul's thing would be, I'd say, this believer over here isn't even a Christian because they eat meat. That's more close to what the church at Rome was going through. Um, if the message is accurate to the word, then we receive it. If it is not, then we reject it. A good example of this, one that I love, is Acts 17, 11. This is, called, this is about the Bereans. Uh, Paul took the message of the gospel to the Bereans, and they received it, but then they didn't just make a decision. It says they searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were true. And the Bible says they were more noble than those at Thessalonica, or the, the letter of Thessalonians was written to that church. They were more noble than them because they didn't just make a, a, a knee-jerk reaction. They actually received what Paul was saying. They heard him out. They listened respectfully. And then they got into God's word and said, okay, let's see if this is really true, which would mean going into the Old Testament. And so that's what I'm talking about here. It's not critiquing the person. It's not attacking the person. It's about attacking the teaching. In fact, Paul goes on to say that we do not actually wrestle against flesh and blood, right? So another person is not your enemy, no matter what they believe or think or teach. They're not the enemy. Worst case, this person is a false teacher who doesn't know Christ and is misusing Scripture for their own profit and gain. Guess what they need? The gospel. They need the gospel. I don't have to worry about judging them because they will be judged, right? James talks about this. I would rather not many of you be masters. What he's saying there is be teachers. Many of you shouldn't be teachers because if you become a teacher of the Word of God, you are held to a stricter judgment by Christ. Because when I open my mouth and I say, thus says the Lord, I need to make sure that it is what it says. And if it's not, then I need to change. And so this idea here, critiquing teaching is not the same as attacking the person. If we do it purely with respect, love for the individual, respect for the person, okay, love for a brother or sister in Christ, we can discern teaching without attacking the person. Okay, so I want to make sure that's kind of clear in what we're talking about here tonight. Uh, any thoughts, comments, or questions on anything we've covered tonight before we close in prayer? Thoughts, comments, or questions? I truly believe that if we will become, if I will become a follower of Christ who is more concerned about making sure my eyes are on Christ and I'm obeying him than I am about whether somebody else is following Christ, I think we'll be a lot more fruitful in this life for his glory. Because I think we'll stop worrying about other people and get more focused on what God wants us to do individually. And again, next week we're going to talk about, it doesn't mean we just ignore the weak and we don't give words of encouragement and admonishing, but we, we will learn how to do that with the right heart and right mind versus trying to force them into what we think. Because sometimes what we do is we say, those convictions are ridiculous. You shouldn't have those convictions. Here, take mine. And we just exchange some convictions for another. It's both personal, non-biblical dogma, but we'll, we'll exchange it and go, okay, now you're strong because you have my convictions or my lack of conviction, depending. Um, so we're going to be careful there, all right? Any thoughts or comments before we play? pray? All right, let's pray, guys. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. And Lord, I do thank you for the individuality that you, you work in each one of us. Father, that you are unique to each one of us in a way that you know our strengths and our weaknesses. You know where we are. We, you know what we need to hear, how we need to be challenged. And so, Father, I pray that we would first and foremost keep our eyes on you. That we would, yes, be aware 
to a degree of what our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are going through and struggling with so we can pray for them, we can encourage them, we can share God's word with them. But I pray that it would be more of a a family member relationship than it would be a master-servant relationship that we think somehow we've arrived and they would be fine if they would just be like us. Father, I pray that we would cast judgments that are appropriate, not superficial, um, judgments that are based in your word, discernments that are based in your word and not in our own convictions necessarily. But Father, I pray that we'd have wisdom in all these things. Thank you for this encouragement from Romans, but also from John 21. We can get so distracted by what other believers are doing or not doing. But I love your encouragement to Peter. What is that to you? Just follow me. And so I pray that that's what we would do this week, that we would just be followers of Christ, obedient, submitted to you, and living sacrifices for your glory. Father, be with us this week, again, with all the things going on with school starting up for some. I pray you just be glorified in all of that. I pray for our student ministry, Lord, our teens that are going to be going into face-to-face schools. They're going to be in their classrooms with teachers and classmates. I pray that they would have a Christ-like attitude, a respectful spirit, and that they would use that opportunity as a mission field to make you known. For those that are in elementary school and younger, Lord, I pray that you do the same for them. Father, we pray that you would be glorified above all things. Be with us now this week and the rest of tonight we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. You are dismissed. We'll see you Wednesday at 7 o'clock.